Hello and welcome to another edition of the Reptile Living Room. In this episode we're talking with Thomas Housley of uh, <clears throat> Scotland and today he's talking to us about a really odd subject. Um, as I once believed, crickets were just, you know, reptile snacks. But uh, Tom Housley has been doing some research to tell us uh, a little bit more that crickets are more than that. They uh, have some evolutionary um, aspects to them that uh, were previously unresearched. And we're talking a lot about cricket sex. So it's a really, it's a really interesting interview. So without further ado, here is Tom Housley and talking about cricket sex and everything in between. We're on the line today with PhD student uh, Tom Housley. And Tom, basically you're... Uh, Doing some kind of interesting research, um, I guess it uh, would be safe to say that you want to become a sex doctor after uh, graduation. Is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what I tell everyone. Um, they don't need to know that it's a doctor of insect sex. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So basically, Tom, we want to talk to you about uh, some of your research because I've um, found you um, via Twitter or Facebook, one of the two. I can't remember which. And, uh, you know, you had all this information about crickets, and, you know, I always thought of them just as, you know, reptile snacks. <laughs> and it turned out they were really actually a very interesting animal. And uh, according to some of the research that we've talked about, um, they've helped us to understand a lot more about evolution than we ever thought we could. Could you tell us a little yeah. bit more about that? Well, the, the field that I work in is uh, sexual selection. Uh, I don't know how much you know about that kind of area. Uh, not uh, much. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I'm willing to learn. <laughs> well, it was, actually, it was quite funny. Last week, I was um, I was at a conference in evolutionary biology, mm -hmm. and one of the guys put up a slide, and he was saying, you know, humans have all these different ways of uh, differentiating between males and females. There was this massive list. Yeah. He said, for biologists, it's easy. It's just the size of the gametes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so for basically you have males uh, produce small gametes which are just sperm that are quite cheap to produce and just contain uh, genetic information mm -hmm. whereas females produce eggs so they can't produce as many because uh, it includes genetic information but also uh, nutrition for the uh, babies as they grow inside them mm -hmm. uh, so this kind of imbalance and resource investment uh, so you have males and females and the limiting factor is that females have this smaller amount of eggs and so for them they should pick the best mate that they can whereas males should just go around and just get as much as they can right <laughs> huh that sounds uh, a lot like humans <laughs> yeah I mean, maybe I should uh, clarify that by saying you know this is not my personal view <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Now, um, as far as uh, different species and stuff like that, and you're also studying parental care in the crickets as well? Uh, well, no, no. Uh, the crickets that I work on don't exhibit parental care. Oh, okay. Um, there's not that many insects that do, I don't think. Okay. Uh, I, could be, uh, I could be wrong. I know that uh, there's a lot of interesting work going on with uh, burying details on parental care. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, so for the crickets that I'm looking at, then there's actually no sort of direct benefits that the male gives to the female. So when females are choosing a mate, um, and loads of different species, then use, quite often the male will provide um, food or territory or parental care. Um, okay. But for a lot 
none of these direct benefits. And instead, uh, the males have some kind of sexual signal which the females will use to discriminate between them. Uh, so for the crickets, I'm sure you'll know that the males uh, produce this calling noise right. uh, through regulation. Uh, with crickets, it's rubbing their wings together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the females actually discriminate between potential mates on that basis. Really? So just on the cricket, on the male cricket song, the females can tell who's who the best mate would be? Well, I'm kind of investigating that just now. Oh, okay. Uh, and the idea of these sexual signals is a really interesting one because um, with species like this, where there's no direct benefits, then you can imagine that uh, like some kind of signal, it's harder when you think of these acoustic ones, but if you think of something like uh, a peacock's tail, Right. And that's a really obvious one where the male has this really big, impressive train and, you know, they all kind of parade in front of the females and the females choose on the basis of this. To try and figure out what's behind this, then you have to think about how if um, if the females are choosing on the basis of this big, uh, these tail feathers. Right. Then, and, you know, it's a very sort of polyandrous system where the females will just mate with any male, the males will mate with as many females as they can, they'll all go away, you know, do their business, mm-hmm. uh, and they don't form pair bonds. So, like, pretty quickly, the, say if you have the top 5% of males mate with all the females, then very soon, all the males of the next generation are going to have, like, all the same trait. Uh, so they're all going to have the same feathers, and then there's going to be no point to females choosing, because everyone has the same Right. Uh, so what we think might be happening, uh, there's a paper published by uh, a couple of guys called Lockro and David Hull, uh, and it's about a model called the Genet Capture Model. Okay. Uh, and that was quite interesting because it kind of indicates that maybe these uh, sexual traits are costly to produce uh, to the point where they become uh, dependent on an individual's condition. Uh, you can think about conditions being... Uh, an ability to acquire resources from the environment and then convert them to like, useful forms. Uh, okay. So, basically, uh, the, the trait like the peacock's tail feathers or the ability of crickets to sing, mm-hmm. anything like that, uh, it gives kind of a summary of an individual's overall genetic quality. Wow. And because they need to be able to get uh, resources from their environment and the better condition, uh, the better they are genetically for that environment, uh, the more resources that they can put into, that they can allocate to uh, producing these traits. Right, so basically if there's like a, a genetic mutation or something like that, then they're probably not going to be able to mate because genetic quality, as you said, you know, would be off off kilter. Yeah, so it's it's a way of maintaining genetic variation. Uh, so if if it was only the traits genes that we were looking at, mm-hmm. then that's quite a small target for uh, a mutation to come and change anything. Whereas right. if the trait signals the overall genetic policy, then that gives a much bigger target for mutation. And also different individuals will they'll be able to do, you know, you can have one genotype would do really well in one environment, but not in another. Mm-hmm. and vice versa. So as environments change in space and in time, 
then the best genotype in that particular environment will be different. And so the females will choose different ones. Wow, that's just amazing. Now, what made you want to work with crickets in the first place? I mean, what was what was the driving force behind crickets versus, you know, <laughs> uh, monkeys yeah, or something else? Well, I uh, I was actually working in computing stuff before, uh, and I decided that I was interested in evolution and wanted to work on that. And I sent out lots and lots of emails and got very few back. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the. The guy who I'm working for just now, he had a lot of projects available, and um, this one seemed like one of the really interesting ones. Right. And cricket's really good for this because, you know, with insects as opposed to mammals or birds, then, you know, they have short lifespans, you can keep loads of them, um, and, you know, do all this kind of lifetime stuff. Right, So right. last year I had, uh, I think, about 2,000 crickets all stored in little individual tubs and taking care of them for a few months. And oh my god, dude, that's insane. <laughs> 2,000 crickets in individual tubs. <laughs> it was absolutely horrendous. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, as far as evolution in crickets, how do crickets help us understand? I mean, I, we, I understand the whole sexual selection thing. How do they help us understand different aspects of evolution? Well, the kind of the question of sex is a really big one in evolutionary biology, mm-hmm. um, because you know, a lot, well, I heard uh, also at this conference last week a lot of people sort of just put forward why do males exist? Why do females let them get away with it? Um, you know, males just they go around, they give their genes out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's kind of this cost of sex, where is it, where if everyone was female and they could reproduce asexually then you could just uh, you know very soon that would kind of take over now you were talking about in the email that you sent over about the uh, a fly in Hawaii that actually um, I guess it's a parasite of some kind for crickets yeah yeah so this is work done by uh, Marlene Zook and Nathan Bailey and a few other people and okay. uh, it's really interesting where they uh, I think, I don't know whether they were there on research the whole time or whether it was just like a nice little holiday trip to Hawaii. Uh-huh. Uh, they found that um, the amount of calling being done by crickets was noticeably quieter after a period of time. Uh, but then when they actually looked around them, there was still the same amount of crickets. Uh, and some further investigation showed that uh, a parasitic fly that had invaded Hawaii for, over from the States, I think. Uh, it was actually targeting males on the basis of their uh, song that was supposed to attract females. Wow. Uh, and this is a really amazing case of rapid evolution where um, there was a sort of mutation uh, in the population where some males had flat wings that uh, didn't produce a call. So they still you know, they raise their wings and they rub them together, but because they're flat and they have no ridges on them, uh-huh. then they're totally silent. And this went from being sort of 5% of the population to about 90% in just a few generations. Wow. Uh, so it's pretty amazing. Uh, and they're doing a lot more work into uh, there's some behavioral stuff that's gone along with this, where uh-huh. uh, these silent males, in order to get a mate, then they'll actually kind of surround the remaining calling males and acts as satellites so that when females are 
looking for these calling males, then they'll bump into one of these silent ones. Oh my gosh! Um, yeah, and also females are becoming less choosy. So um, previously they would, you know, find a male that was calling, and then the male would have to produce another song. It's a kind of courtship one. Right. Uh, but females are they're not waiting for that. They just they find a male, they'll just hop on. Wow. Uh, what's great is I uh, I saw Nathan talking last week. Mm-hmm. He was saying that they went to another island and they found that uh, the same fly was targeting uh, crickets on another Hawaiian island. And again, the, this sort of flat wing silent morphology had uh, become much more prevalent. So they sort of assumed it was probably gene flow from the first island where some of these silent ones had got across and were mating with the females. Um, but they investigated further, and it seems that it's actually a different silent flatwing morphology. So it's kind of it's evolved separately on both islands as a response wow. to parasitic fly. That is wild. <laughs> so you have two separate islands where the parasitic fly has been feeding on these male crickets, and basically two instances of changes in morphology have happened on two separate locations. Yeah, and very, very quickly. And I think you said over a few generations? Yeah, I think it was over maybe five years or so. Wow. I'm not entirely sure I'd have to check the paper, but... Right. Uh, I'm pretty sure this stuff will be... I, this, uh, I saw that Marlene Zook, who was the kind of principal investigator on this, these papers, uh, she has a new book out just now on insect sex. So that should be... I would imagine it would be heavily uh, found in there. Right, right, right. Now, uh, another one of the interesting topics that uh, kind of caught my eye was uh, the species that you're studying has another trait where they actually give the female a gift, so yeah, to speak. So <laughs> <laughs> it's starting to sound more and more like humans every time. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, when when the female decides to mount the male, uh, so in this species the, the male kind of courts the female and she'll uh, get on top of him and she'll pull out um, the spermatophore, which mm-hmm. holds uh, a little sperm packet, but also a kind of gelatinous nuptial gift, um, which is called a spermatophilax. And after she uh, gets off him, then she'll curl around and take this little jelly thing off and start eating it huh. she won't actually be able to remove the sperm packet until she's uh, either finished eating this gift or thrown it away and wow. the interesting thing in the species I'm looking at is so in several other ones then, uh, these nuptial gifts seem to contain uh, nutrients and it's something good for the female and it'll give her like a little boost of resources before she goes to lay her eggs okay. uh, but with this one then People have analysed the amino acid content, and it mm-hmm. seems like there's nothing nutritious in there. Uh, but there are free amino free amino acids which are supposed to be sort of nice tasting, but don't provide any nutrition. Huh. So we're wondering whether you know can males produce something that tastes really nice and is really chewy, so the female wants to uh, get through it all. She doesn't want to throw it away. Uh, oh, interesting. Then, yeah, so while she's chewing on that, then more sperm is being transferred into her system. Right. From this little sperm packet. 
Wow. That's wild. <laughs> so crickets really are more than just a reptile snack. All right. <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, what's really, what's really interesting about the nuptial gifts as well is in some other species, so I think it's in katydids and maybe some other ones, but um, when, when times are hard um, and there's not so much food to go around, right. Uh, the males will they'll take a little bit longer to produce these uh, in case it is that they actually have nutrition in the nuptial gifts mm-hmm. but the males take longer to produce it and for the females it's a really important source of nutrition uh, so actually the, the males will start kind of holding back a little bit they'll be a bit more choosy uh, the females will start fighting over males uh, and the males will select you know the biggest females to mate with uh, so this is a kind of it's called a sexual reversal, uh, where males start being choosy instead of females. Wow! So the females are ready to go, and they're fighting over males, and because times are hard, they're holding back this nuptial gift. Yeah. So the limiting resource is that normally wow. the, uh, the limiting resource is the female's eggs, um, but in these times, then it becomes the male spermatophores. Huh. That's really wild, man. I mean, it almost sounds like these crickets are actually, you know, I don't want to say, um, well, yeah, I guess cognizant of, you know, what's going on instead of operating on instinct. I don't know. Yeah. It sounds mean, like there's a lot of behavior stuff still to be uh, still to be investigated there. Yeah, there is a lot of weird behavior things, and um, a, a lot of what I'm looking at is uh, how males have we get we talk about kind of a life history strategy uh, or an allocation strategy where they uh, gather resources and they'll allocate them to different traits and when you put it like that it kind of seems more like a a conscious decision but I right. think it's you know, more genetic stuff but um, yeah it's really interesting there's a, a guy that we do some uh, collaborations with John Hunt and he's got a really nice paper that was in Methods to Nature a few years ago mm-hmm. uh, and that was about how there was a species of cricket where they raised someone a uh, high protein diet and someone a lower protein diet and the ones that were kind of high quality uh, they died, actually died when they were younger but they called they put so much uh, resources into calling um, and so normally that would have been attracting females that they actually uh, called more in their shorter lifetime than the lower quality ones did in their longer lifetimes wow so it's almost as if they knew <laughs> that, hey we got a short lifespan we got to make this stuff happen like now <laughs> yeah so it's kind of it's interesting to see you know what what causes what is it that you know they have lots of resources so they just go let's Expand this. Let's just go crazy for a hero. Right. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. So, what's next on your uh, agenda for uh, research or, or what have you? Anything uh, in particular? Well, or? I'm just finishing. I'm just finished writing a review paper, which is uh, under peer review just now. So, I'm hoping to hear back from that. Oh, cool. Uh, although. I'm kind of not hoping to hear back from it because I'll probably have to change everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorting out all the data from the last big experiment of a couple of thousand crickets. Oh uh, 
I was saying I started a new experiment recently, but I had some problem where everything just died. And I'm not entirely sure why. I was kind of worried that it might be. Uh, I don't know if you know about the cricket paralysis virus. Yes, I have heard of it. Yeah, so I was that was quite distressing. As you know, I was trying to find out more about it, and I see these things about. Uh, I think some people have had small businesses set up to provide crickets as reptile live food, and a couple of them went bankrupt, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah, this uh, virus went through and wiped out a whole bunch of uh, cricket businesses, definitely. Yeah, so uh, I don't think it is that, thankfully, because I, uh, all my stocks are fine. It was only the uh, experimental ones that all died, so I'm starting again and haven't just trying to be extra careful about everything. And, Right. Hopefully that will go well. Uh, I've got a couple of little things to look at. Wow. Uh, I can't give away too much because I haven't published anything yet. Oh yeah, no, definitely, definitely. No, I completely <laughs> understand. Uh, but yeah, it's all about, you know, this kind of uh, how they allocate resources and things like that. And I have uh, the ones that I was using last year. Then what's really cool is I have these inbred lines that I... I got from a guy called Scott Sackaluk who has been working on uh, the species that I work on for many, many years and is the sort of guru of these ones. Oh, okay. Uh, so they produced inbred lines which have been inbred for probably about 45 generations now. So they're pretty much, each line is just a big box of uh, clones where they all have the same genotype. Right. So what's really great for this is that you can put them in you know, you can do different things to them and see how they react. And so it's the kind of what genotype they produce under different environmental conditions from the same genotype. Oh, wow. Uh, and then you can compare that. So that's really interesting. Yeah, very definitely. Well, that's awesome, man. I, uh, man, that's just... <laughs> That's just some really incredible stuff, you know, because, like I said, here I am, you know, crickets are reptile food, you know, that's about, you know, as far as my extent of knowledge on uh, crickets went, and now, now I almost feel guilty for feeding them to my reptiles. Oh, no, I mean, they're, they're still, they're nice little, for your reptiles, but it means you can enjoy watching them every so often as well. Yeah, as long as they're alive in the enclosure, I can still watch them. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, did you want to mention the website, uh, Tom, for you? Uh, yeah, so I have a little blog, uh, which I'm trying to use a bit more often. Uh, it's at tomhousley.wordpress.com. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, I will be putting up various little stories about, generally about insect sex, surprisingly enough. Uh, and also, there's contact details there, so if anyone wants to ask me any questions about my work or generally about insect sex, then I'd be very happy to answer them if I can. Awesome. Now, um, before I let you go, we were <laughs> we were talking about uh, you were looking for. Um, I don't recall what you exactly you were looking for, but you came across. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite subjects which is uh i think it was the about page or something like that and uh they were talking about cricket aggression and they were showing a picture of a grasshopper i went to another page and it was something about um uh, it was actually about cricket paralysis virus yeah and a picture of a locust nice and I was just thinking, god you know <laughs> 
imagine this kind of virus that I say turns your cricket into. <laughs> so when crickets get mad, they they're like the you know they're like the Hulk. They change into locust. <laughs> locust. <laughs> oh my gosh. So yes, folks, please don't <laughs> don't rely on the about pages or Wikipedia for your uh, research. <laughs> Tom and I have both found it to be very needy and uh, factual information, to say the least. <laughs> well, was it you needed a twenty-foot tall tree for your? Yeah, experience? yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. That was from a re- that was bizarre. That was a that was so odd because this was a reputable well what was supposed to be a reputable uh, website for uh, reptiles and uh, you go in there and you're you know looking at the plant list and all of a sudden it lists off calistemon which is the bottle brush tree and I was like well wait a minute bottle brush tree that because I you know I know what that is we had one of my parents backyard and I'm like that thing's huge that thing's like 20 feet how the hell are you going to put that? Who recommended this? <laughs> you know? And then they're recommending Cypress and all this other stuff. I'm like, you got it. Wow. Who approved this plant list? <laughs> and where's your enclosure with it in it? Because I want to see this. <laughs> 20-foot tree in an enclosure. Sure. <laughs> yeah, so mutating crickets, uh, you know, trees in your 14-gallon enclosure. You know, no problem. We, we, we got you handled. <laughs> If you, have a, if you have a place big enough for that, it would be perfect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, if you're raising Komodos, you know, no problem. Oh, man. Well, Tom, I really appreciate you being on the show. And uh, <clears throat> any final thoughts as far as uh, insect sex? or uh, <laughs> It just sounds really odd to me. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, obviously, thanks very much for having me. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I would just say maybe... You know, there are parallels, but I guess not to uh, take this too seriously. Right, right. <laughs> don't get too anthropomorphic about it. <laughs> and if you do, don't blame us. <laughs> yeah, I was actually, I was going to mention, um, there was uh, another scientist I met last week who, she had something that was published in, uh, actually went in a few newspapers in the UK because it was about how some crickets, uh, the females will kind of readily mate with their siblings. Oh, really? They'll, yeah, but they'll actually store more sperm from unrelated males so that they can use that to fertilize eggs. Uh, so they kind of know whether it's uh, wow. related or unrelated. Oh, that's but pretty yeah, amazing. <laughs> yeah, again, perhaps not something that your listeners should... <laughs> 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 yeah, don't take that to heart, guys. <laughs> Definitely not. So there you go, folks. That was Tom Housley with uh, crickets, sex, and everything you probably didn't really want to know because now you're going to look at your crickets as more than just a reptile snack. And once again, for uh, Tom's website, uh, it's going to be in the show notes. You can uh, check that out, ask him any questions you have about crickets, insects, what have you. And uh, once again, thanks to Tom for uh, being on the show. and look forward to his upcoming research uh, as far as uh, what he's doing with the crickets and the dirty cricket sex. Anyway, <laughs> thanks for tuning in to the Reptile Living Room. We love having you guys uh, visit us and uh, do leave some uh, comments or uh, give us a look up on Facebook. We have a fan page there as well. And uh, do look forward to the upcoming shows. Uh, one of the big ones we wanted to mention is we are going to be interviewing none other 
than Ray Morgan from the Venom interviews. And if you guys are not familiar with that, go to the upcoming shows page, uh, scroll down there, look at the Venom interviews. There's a link to the movie that will be coming out, all in regards to Venom. It's an awesome, awesome project. I totally recommend that you get involved with if you can in any way, shape, or form. (laughs) 